what happens when we augment my brain with more you know, artificial neurons for better memory, for better processing and so on. So I think if we think of systems, right, uh, whether it's human systems or, or machine you know, uh, computer systems, there's input, there's processing, and then there's output, right? Uh, today, we refer to a lot of these things as sensors, actuators, and the intelligence in between. I think these things are constantly being augmented by technology. Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep There in Watson. My guest today, Christopher Huen, is a accomplished entrepreneur and technologist. He has had multiple successful startups get acquired. He has lectured and taught about artificial intelligence and machine learning. And in today's interview, we talk at length about some of the limitations that artificial intelligence faces, why Christopher believes in a human-first approach to building AI models, and some implications for the future of technology. Super educational. So glad Christopher is able to share his time with us. Here is Christopher Wen. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. All right, Christopher, welcome to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm excited to be talking with you. Hey, Aaron. Uh, I'm really excited to start off with kind of a, a pair of definitions for folks that will, will put a lot of context and, and maybe uh, even this just be educational for folks that are not as steeped in machine learning and artificial intelligence as you are. Uh, can you talk about the difference between knowledge-first artificial intelligence and human-first artificial intelligence? Okay. Well, there's also data-first Right. Uh, so I think that's a, <clears throat> you know, people like to draw Venn diagrams and so on. So you can think of uh, in this context, if we say artificial intelligence is the biggest circle. Right. And then there's a branch that is focused on AI based on learning patterns from data, that's machine learning. Right. So you can think of that as data first uh, AI. Now, it's, they're not mutually exclusive, but there's also the other side where it is data first, uh, sorry, uh, knowledge first, where the information or the pattern that you're learning comes from human knowledge as opposed to coming purely from data. Uh, so that's that's sort of one major dichotomy. Now, human first AI is kind of like a circle that, 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 that encircle that uh, both, right? Human first means that when you build artificial intelligence systems, just like when you build any, any, any other you know, systems, particularly those that are life critical, you think about the human impact first. Uh, so, for example, uh, I'm sure you've heard a lot in, in recent years about ethics and AI. So that would be one aspect of human first AI. Uh, another is thinking about the user experience, the ultimate end user, which is humans uh, for the most part, right? Even though you're using a lot of data and machine learning and so on. Um, sometimes when you build the systems and you're so steeped in the data aspect of it, you may forget who the ultimate end user is. So that's that's the orientation of human-first AI. What are some of the expressions of data-first AI that have led you with your most recent company and just in general as a kind of personal mission to be so focused on elevating human-first AI? It, se it seems somewhat um, so like self-evident that human-first AI sounds like a great thing, right. but what, where, what are some of the shortcomings or flaws for data-first? That that is a that is a really good question. It's it's probably deeper than uh, you know. I, I guess looking from the outside is not obvious that that should be a question. 
Uh, but maybe let me answer it from 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 the perspective that I think you're coming from. It may not be obvious uh, that there's almost a, a cultural um, uh, emphasis within the machine learning community. Um, in fact, there's very strong school of thought that says, uh, I don't really need anything other than data. Uh, now, if I don't have enough data, that's one thing. But eventually, as I collect enough data, as the world become more sensorized, uh, and 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 you know data storage become more abundant. Uh, I can essentially store everything that there needs uh, that that needs to be known, and therefore all I need is data and the algorithms. And between data and algorithms, I can essentially build any intelligent systems. So th- that point of view essentially uh, it it doesn't necessarily mean by definition exclude human, but it does in the, you know when you're so into it, you essentially forget that we still live in a very physical world. We still live in a essentially human world. And, and it behooves us to sort of call out and say, wait a minute, okay, that's that's fine and good, but there are things that humans are uniquely, at least today, good, good at. The most obvious thing is there's not enough data. And so you need human knowledge to, to build some of these systems. So that's sort of easily conceded in the near term. Uh, but even in the long term, do we really want a world where even even the intent for what's going to happen next, even the intent for what the future should be, uh, would be built by or de- decided by machines. I think humans will always be necessary, right? And, and, and it is necessary by, by definition, that is, we want it to be, that the decisions for what happens next, what happens a minute from now, five minutes from now, 10 years from now, remain under human control. And I think that's, that's uh, important to remind people of. Yeah, it, it's an interesting phenomenon because I... I have a kind of one social group, one collection of friends that are very, you know, engineering, highly analytical. And I, I kind of can create a model in my head of that, you know, I just need to know the probability of what the thing's going to be. And it's so deterministic from, from, from that mm-hmm. type of vantage point versus, you know, my friends that are more artistic, that, that that's basically a completely foreign way of, of thinking about the world to them. Yeah, yeah, and and I would say that, that that's why I thought your interest your your question was in, very interesting, because uh, it is hard to disagree with either of those. It is the extreme version of them, and 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 practitioners, you know, engineers, and so on. We tend to take things to extremes. So tell us about AIdomatic, the the most recent company that you founded, and and how you're intending to elevate human first AI with this company. Yeah, so Itomatic focuses on what we call knowledge-first AI. So you can think of that as a subset of of human-first. Knowledge-first implies that we are leveraging human knowledge, domain expertise, and so on to build systems, intelligent systems that otherwise data alone uh, cannot easily build or even cannot build at all. Um, In the larger sense, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the human-first aspect, the, the, the... the, the ethical aspect, we are involved in helping to build many life-critical systems, for example, automotive, cybersecurity, uh, coal supply chain, you know, how you get a fish from your ocean to the, to the dining table, uh, avionics, you know, when you fly, uh, you know, that, that Wi-Fi that you get as well, that screen, the, the, the so-called IFE, the in-flight entertainment, we're involved in that. All Everything that I've mentioned ends up being controlled by serviced by and, and exist in, in, in the service of, of humans, right? So um, there's one particular aspect. Uh, by the way, we were, uh, we, we, 
we had a different company earlier, and then that was successfully acquired by Panasonic. And being part of Panasonic was quite interesting because we essentially had to apply AI machine learning, like Silicon Valley algorithms, meet real industrial systems. And, and we ran into a wall fairly quickly. And it's what I've, I've just spoken throughout this so far, which is there's not enough data for machine learning. So as good as the team uh, was, as good as our software has been, we couldn't solve certain key problems within Panasonic. Uh, and you know, one example is predictive maintenance. And predictive maintenance is where you try to predict, right? Not just anticipate, but actually predict. The, uh, the, 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 using the vocabulary you had earlier, the probability of a compressor failing within the next two weeks, right? Tell, tell me what is that probability? And if the probability is 90%, we go ahead and replace it before it even fails. Uh, turns out predictive maintenance is very hard for machine learning alone to solve, simply because there's not enough past examples of failure. Right? Machine learning requires a lot of, of, of examples, right? And all the data examples that we have all the sensors are all you know, normally functioning uh, systems. And, and when they fail, when they do fail, they fail in very different ways and different conditions and so on. But suffice it to say that the so-called labels, right, in, in the machine learning world, we, we, we say we need labels of failures in order to learn from them and then predict them in the future. That doesn't exist or doesn't exist in, in sufficient qual uh, quantity. Uh, but when we work with the human domain experts and we give them sensor information and they look at it, of course, we shortlist them. So not, not, not you know, all of the data, but only those that are looking a lot of what's called anomalous, looking different from before. Uh, then the human engineer can easily tr look at the traces and say, you know, based on what I'm, I'm seeing, you probably want to take a look at the compressor or, or the filter or something like that. So codifying that expertise, that knowledge is the specialty of, of Itematic. And, and so what we, the benefit that, that our customers receive is that they can go to market with AI systems, whether the knowledge, whether the intelligence ultimately comes from data or from human knowledge, right? we, we can help them make that happen. I'd love to drill down a little bit deeper on this idea that there, there isn't enough data to be able to do something like this predictive maintenance. I'm going to try to like guess what a couple of the causes are, but you can just kind of correct me or tell me if I'm off base. Yep. So in one instance, if you think of like really heavy industry, you know, there, there's actually a relatively short list of nuclear plants out there, period. <laughs> and they haven't been around for that long. And, you know, the, 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 there's a very, very select few that have actually like had a meltdown, right? Like we could like probably list it on one hand, right? And they do so in different ways. Yeah. And they do so in different ways. So there really isn't a lot of uh, enough data about failures for something like that to have uh, high confidence in your predictions for the future. But then I, I would say, you know, what about something like uh, the fleet of F-150s that are out on the road these days, where there's literally hundreds of thousands and there's, you know, different ones each year, but with, you know, kind of subtle design variations that can probably to some degree be transferred from one to the next. Is it partially these heavy industry sets where there just isn't the quantity of items? Or is that even still an issue for something like a fleet of Ford F-150s that's you know, the, the nation's best-selling truck. Oh, I, I love those two examples. I'm going to use those examples. <laughs> I'm going to steal from you. So the first one is very clear, right? There's simply not enough, almost ever, right? Uh, but from physics, from designs and so on, the nuclear engineer experts can build or can work with us, for example, to build knowledge system, knowledge-based systems 
uh, including data that that can predict potential failure, right? So that that's that's one where I think it's very clear that human expertise is needed. Uh, I like the the F one hundred and fifty example that you give. It is actually embedded in 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 what you say, which is uh, every year a new model comes out, right? And sensor systems today are built such that let me back up and say it this way: it seems like we are swimming in data. Right, but we're not really at a stage where there's enough data for machine learning algorithms to sort of kind of become experts and, and sort of just learn and, and understand what's going on. So when you when you change from one model year to the next year to the machine learning algorithm, that can look completely different. Like I don't know what the hell is going on with this. Right, it doesn't it doesn't recognize it at all. Uh, and so different operating conditions, different locations, different driver conditions, and so on. It is quite possible. It's called stratification of data, right? Once you add one variable to it, let's say you have a billion data points, but when you divide, just say there's one variable that divide into 10 parts. So now you have uh, 10 bins of 100 million data points each, and then you add one more dimension to it. By the time you add enough specificity for that F-150 in that particular location driven by that per particular person, you may not have enough failure data specific enough for that purpose. Now, of course, I'm not saying that knowledge first is required for every problem. Clearly, we've got GPT-3, Dolly, and, and you know, Google is, is very happily, you know, predicting people's clicks and so on. So, but there's a large class of very important industrial problems for which this is absolutely true and will be true for, for some time, which is there's not enough data uh, to apply machine learning alone to, to build predictive systems. But it's, it's helpful to even think about how hard it is a problem for something where there is a large fleet like the F-150s, because in that case, if they're collecting data, so, so even in instances where there is a lot of data and they're collecting it, if it's clear that there's an issue with the carburetors on the 2017 model, by the 2019 model, they've changed the carburetor. So it's no longer even exactly. a, a helpful piece of data because surely the design would be amended and you wouldn't just kind of try to persist with the maintenance of something that is, you know, with heavy infrastructure intended to last for decades. That's right. And, and if we follow that logic further and, and think about it a bit more deeply, why is it that the human expert can deal with the 2018 model and the 2019 model? It's because they're not just looking at the data coming off of that particular carburetor, right? They, they bring a lifetime of knowledge. And so they have a mental model uh, that that is much larger than just what that data is. So so I think the thing that you can say for for very certain, one hundred percent sure, is that we have less data than we think. Interesting. That is that is a a pretty powerful counter narrative relative to the headlines one would read. Yeah. Speaking it's, it's of always seems so big until until you know ten years later you look back and say, well, oh, billion transistors versus you know ten thousand transistors. Right? Yeah. Speaking of the headlines, you mentioned Dolly. That's the the kind of big. AI topic du jour of the uh, OpenAI project's latest uh, thing that they released, same uh, uh, group that did GPT-3, which was you know creating these paragraphs of text off of uh, a, a limited amount of inputs, and now the ability to produce a, a, a image in the same idea, hey, show me a picture of um, a rhino running across the surface of the moon with red shorts on, and yep. it's actually able to you know, come relative, relatively close uh, and, and really display that in a compelling way. What, you know, when, when you saw that break, were there any things that, that jumped out to you as, as someone who's in the AI space that made this either significant or maybe 
not as significant as, as the headlines might be screaming about? Yeah, so so I'm, I've am i been in technology since the beginning of the PC revolution. I've, I've, I was a hacker. My first PC was the TI-994A, and I've never stopped. So I've, I've noticed one interesting pattern, you know, like my personal experience with technology, which is, which is this dichotomy. The technology, the math, the capabilities never surprise me. Like it's so predictable. It's so obvious. Like I, I can tell you what's going to happen, you know, within the next 50 years. And you know, I, I just know that machines and humans are going to merge, you know, and so on. Um, Setting that aside, when I actually experience the technology doing something, right, it could be something very minor, uh, you know, clicking on an email and then being able to, you know, unsend it or something. It's a trivial user experience. It's still quite amazing, right? So, so you know, I always observe that even though I understand completely what's happening under the hood, experiencing it as a human is always kind of this, this sense of awe, you know, and, and wonder. So the example, you know, the live example of GPT-3, right? So I got access to the sandbox and, and started playing with it. And again, I understand what's going on behind the scenes, but I have so much fun. <laughs> I stay up the entire night, you know, trying to try trying different prompts and then, and then getting the results coming back and, and, and so on. So, so I think, you know, that, that's an interesting way to also look back at sort of what we call, we call human first AI, right? It is not just what's under the hood. In fact, it's, it's almost never what's under the hood. It's how we experience it. Uh, and, and I think that sense of awe, that sense of wonder, that excitement, that user experience is what we're trying to deliver you know, to, to the end user at the end of the day. And uh, it's one of those things where they, they have the saying, like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Like this mm -hmm. is up there with the magical experiences that I've seen of you know, putting a couple words in like you would in the caption of an image and the entire mm -hmm. thing being rendered. That's really the, the human experience is the, the magical sensation there. That's right. I mean, the, the things that you and I live with every day, you know, you're sitting, I don't know where you're sitting, and, and yet we're communicating like we're next to each other. Uh, you project back 50 years, 100 years, people would say that's magic. That, that's amazing, right? Uh, but, but even things that don't seem like magic anymore, that there's something about the, 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 the field, particularly in AI, uh, you know, there's always... <laughs> Uh, not detractors, but that uh, I would say, you know, boohoo people. You know, the minute something comes out, they say, "Well, that's because it's doing this and it's doing that, so that's not AI, right?" Uh, but but the goalpost of what they consider AI is always moving, and and I think really what it is is, do we understand how to do it, or do we not understand how to do it? Uh, for me, it's uh, the, the definition of AI. Uh, in terms of that argument, doesn't really matter, right? What kind of delight, what kind of user experience, what kind of safety, what kind of you know better world is the technology delivering for the user? That I think that that that's that's what matters, whether it's magical or not. So you um, referenced something there, somewhat offhand, as you were talking about these the predictability of these future breakthroughs, and you you referenced the merging of of humans and machines. Um, and, you know, some people, the, the Ray Kurzweil call that like endpoint being a singularity of sorts in which the, mm -hmm. you know, the, your consciousness is uploaded to the cloud. Um, and other folks look at stuff much more in the wearable space, 
where, you know, the intimacy of technology where uh, a server used to sit in a room and then it sat on a desktop and then it was portable from desktop to desktop as a laptop. Then it's your mobile phone. Now it's your Apple Watch. Now it's your AirPods right in your ears. And it's just becoming closer and closer and closer to you. From your vantage point, what is the maybe, I don't know if next or, or maybe the salient manifestation of that technology becoming more intimate that, and what some of the downstream implications of that would be. Yeah. Well, well, first, I, I like the term, I, I like and don't like the term singularity. Perhaps I, I like it for one purpose, and I, I don't necessarily like it as, as how people may misunderstand it. I think as a concept of saying there's some threshold at which something, you know, something that's very substantial has happened. I think that's interesting to think about, right? The term singularity seems to imply or connotes that it is some single point in time, and it isn't. Uh, I think the singularity is over a hundred years, right? It is a continuous um, leveraging of the machines that we build. You know, th- 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 these, these glasses that I wear, right, is an augmentation, right? If you take them off, I'm, I'm less functional. Um, uh, so what happens when we augment my brain with more you know, artif- artificial neurons for better memory, for better processing, and so on? So I think if we think of systems, right, uh, whether it's human systems or, or machine you know, uh, computer systems, there's input, there's processing, and then there's output, right? Uh, today, we refer to a lot of these things as sensors, actuators, and the intelligence in between. I think these things are constantly being augmented by technology. You know, and even before this conversation, 100 years ago, we started doing that. I think we get more and more uncomfortable uh, for some reason when it gets closer and you know, it gets not just sensors, the actuators. My sensor, I mean, like I touch and feel and so on, right? Uh, uh, and, and, and when you carry the phone, the accelerometer, you know, the GPS and so on, those are sensors that, that say where you are. Um, when we get closer and closer to human intelligence, we tend to get very uncomfortable. And, and I thought about that a lot. I think probably the reason is we feel as a species that that is the one thing that we are most superior at on planet Earth, right? We're not the strongest, we're not the smallest, we're not the biggest and so on, but we're the smartest. And if somebody comes along and say, you know, <laughs> there's a very real probability that a, a number of decades from now, you will no longer be the smartest on the planet. And I, I think we're disturbed by that. But I think that what's really going to, you know, what's most likely that to happen is, is that it's not like a machine is just going to surpass us. Machines have always, have always assisted us, have always augmented us. So I see no, no difference in terms of augmentation of the human mind. Do you also think, though, that it's it's partially a factor of speed? You know, we've had Jeff Booth on in the past. And he talks about like the exponential nature of technology. Yeah where he uses the analogy of folding a piece of paper in half. And if you fold it in half seven times, like it would be, you know, go from a very manageable size to a very manageable size. If you go to 35 times or 36 times, you're reaching out to like the moon or the sun in terms Mm -hmm. of the the height of that. It's just very hard for the human brain to understand something that's exponential and also to coexist with it, right? Because people didn't like when, you know, the written word was was widely spread. They're like, this is disruptive. You're supposed to keep things in your brain, not on a, a piece of parchment. And you know, other things that have been disruptive to human life, but happen in this kind of slow meandering type of pace versus like I talked about that intimacy and it's like, 
going from you know the full room server to a, a, a personal computer was what 25 years but mm -hmm. you know going from an iphone to the apple watch and airpod was less than a decade that is absolutely true and i, I certainly didn't mean to be flippant in terms of saying well it's, we're just going to augment our brain and everything will be you know uh, fine and dandy um you think something nothing to do with ai for example globalization right adam smith's school of thought is is goods and services are best you know, done, you know, created, you know, where they're, they're most efficiently done. And, and so you should make a glove and I should make a car. And, and if we specialize in that, um, you know, the, the world economy will be fine. Well, you know, tell that to the you know, tens of thousands of people who lose their jobs anytime a manufacturing plant moves overseas, right? You know, as individual, we still move at, at very bio biological speeds. Um, and so there's sort of an adaptive, uh, time constant. You know, we, we can't just say instantly and say, okay, the, the world is changing, therefore tomorrow I'm going to be different. Uh, so, so I think th that's another reason why, particularly in AI, right, the speed of things are changing so quickly, right? What you're seeing in terms of progress, th that's just the results. Let's not, let's not debate about how good the algorithms are. You know, uh, machines are today doing amazing things with, with typing in a sentence and then generating a very artistic you know, painting. Uh, ten years ago, ten years ago, you would say, "Well, that that's very far away." So, so things are you're absolutely things are moving so quickly that that uh, humans are not able to adapt to 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 these changes. The power, the negative power of social media, we're just coming to grapple with. Right? We didn't know this ten years ago. I'm not going to blame people for saying intentionally doing these things. I'm definitely going to blame them for not responding to it now that we understand it. So human first AI, there's a very big part of that, that there's a whole framework that we work on called AI rule, um, you know, having to do with, with uh, uh, auditability, you know, understandability, explainability, and so on. Um, that text exactly that, that in, in this context, that, that, that human time constant into account. Right? Sure, you can build machines that can, you know, move at light speed and so on, but, but slow down a little bit or put some safeguards around it so that the human cannot just coexist with the machines, but can actually benefit from and, and control these machines. Yeah. To me, I think the biggest opportunity, you know, even for the media that we produce here uh, at my company, you know, there's a tool Descript, which will auto-transcribe and basically assist yep. in the yep. you know, production Nathan. of the media. And it doesn't render a video editor moot. It just helps them to kind of be more efficient and, and produce a, a better final work in less time. And I think that that is, you know, what I encourage most people to try and, and, and take that, That's right. Those. You know, what, why sit there, you know, look for exactly where that word is being spoken and then drag the, <laughs> the cursor, you know, why not just delete that word, right? So Christopher, I want to ask a little bit kind of about your personal entrepreneurial journey here before we aim towards wrapping up. You've been a part of some of the kind of most blue chip of blue chip big technology firms. You referenced, you referenced Panasonic already, Google, Xerox, Intel, and you've also uh, bounced out and, and co-founded a number of companies that were um, acquired and had their own varying degrees of success. Um, as I, I find in the entrepreneurial community that there can be a, a kind of binary thinking or a black and white type of approach to what a good working environment looks like or what, what should be aspired to. Um, and sometimes people are, are absolutists. It's, it's, I got to be in the startup. I have to be in the small space it, it, or not small space, the, the smaller firm in order to have fulfillment or, or what have you. 
my interpretation, looking, you know, not knowing you that well, but looking at the kind of um, resume there, it looks like you have more comfort to some degree uh, kind of jumping back and forth between institutions and large companies and then jumping out to uh, kind of start the next thing and, and germinate that from a, a kind of seed level. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about, about how you think about that over the arc of a career and what you've learned being in both of those environments? Yeah, I've, I've thought about something adjacent to this, and that is that, so, so I grew up, I was born in Vietnam, uh, escaped from the country when I was 12, uh, came to San Jose, California, you know, did my undergrad at Berkeley, PhD Stanford. Uh, exactly 13 years later, I was back in, in Asia as a professor in Hong Kong. So, and, and I lived in Malaysia for 10 years, lived, not just worked. Um, so, so I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm really, I have homes in different places and, and particularly in different cultures. I, I used to do neighborhood watch with my Muslim neighbors, right? Uh, every night and so on. Um, and I think that that brings a certain kind of adaptability or flexibility as well as sort of perspective. You know, in machine learning, we have this thing we call, you know, when you collect data, try to collect, a, you know, data with large variants, with lots of different examples. You shouldn't take the same examples uh, over and over again. Then it will sort of overfit to those examples. So, so I think uh, sort of part of, of, of what, you what you observe as my adaptability across different kinds of work, I think is, is really just part of who I am in terms of the, the data examples that I've been exposed to, certainly across different institutions, but also across different living conditions. If you talk about the Maslow's pyramid, I've been, you know, the entire, across the entire stack as well. So, so, I, so I think what, one thing that I've learned is that your value system, this is, this is very uncomfortable for, for people to admit, but, but I, I will be the first. Your value system tend to shift and they tend to reflect those of the environment immediately around you, right? Uh, so I was thinking about that when you say people like to, people say, you know, I got to be in a startup and so on. It could be a function of two things. It could be what they're seeing in the press in terms of, you know, all of the glamour and all the excitement and so on. But if you're sitting in an island somewhere and you don't read that, maybe you won't think that that's what you want to do. So that, that's, that's sort of an external factor that, that we need to not exclude but control for. And then there is, of course, what is the internal factor. In my case, it's always been – I've, I've now old enough to, to know this for sure. I thought about this, but I know that I will never retire. I, I tried, but it turns out that, my, you know, of course, my family comes first. Uh, but the work, the satisfaction that I get from it is is the main drive. And in some cases, a startup like Itomatic is the best way to enable that, to facilitate that. In other cases, it's been, you know, Google, uh, Google Gmail systems and, 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 and launching that for a billion users and so on. Uh, but it's really the, the satisfaction that you want to get out of bed every day. Like this morning, I got out of bed and said, I, I got to do this. I think I think that's the day-to-day -day part is what's the most important, it turns out. There are people who are going to say, you know, it's the journey, but the journey is, is the day-to-day. -day. Yeah, I mean, the the notion of people deriving their values from the, the folks around them, in certain instances, you know, people are real big, especially in the Valley, on, on uh, you know, Girardian yeah. mimetic theory and this idea of everyone kind of just mirroring the, the folks around them. And it is an uncomfortable truth. It's also something that's very easy to have a blind spot to. Um, 
but it, it yep. is, you know, something that once you start to look for it, you can see how uh, just, you know, we're optimized to be social, optimized to get along with the tribe around us. So I think that's a, a really salient point, and I, uh, I admire, and I'm, I'm jealous that I aspire to a similar diversity of experiences over the course of, of my career as well. Christopher, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for Absolutely. coming on the show. Uh, before we ask our last couple questions, was there anything else you were hoping to share today that I just didn't give you a chance to? Uh, well, we talked a little bit about Itomatic. So, you know, go, go to itomatic.com. It's like automatic, with, but starting with AI and, and learn a little bit more about us, uh, particularly those that, that, that are interested in knowledge first AI. Christopher, this has been fantastic. I'm going to link all that in the show notes from the podcast app where people are probably listening to this right now. Before I let you go, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Hmm. Actionable. Okay. Well, you know, one, one thing that I, that one, one very powerful device, one, one device that I've found very powerful in my work in my life that is grossly underutilized is what I call the separation of the what and the why or the problem statement from the solution. So, so for example, when, when a bunch of people get into a room and say there's an issue going on, uh, what's the first thing people are going to say? We should do this. We should do this. No, no, we should do that. And then the argument goes on forever. What I always try to do is, you know, back up a little bit, right? And say, okay, th this is going to sound kind of funny because it's also one of the memes, right? Uh, what problem are we trying to solve here, right? Before we throw solutions at it, because everybody who, you know, who's good, you know, good intent, they're going to try to solve something in their mind, but that may not align with what, you know, everybody else is trying to solve. So, so I think the challenge here is to be able to really put into almost a system and a procedure in place where you separate the what from the why uh, and think about the why first and then, and then the what. Try to agree on the problem statement in the room first before you allow even a discussion of what the solutions are. So uh, that sounds very clear, very obvious, very effective. Nobody practices it. Yeah, I uh, I always live by most of the stuff that you need to do is simple but not easy, and that epitomizes that yeah. idea to me. I I, I haven't often heard uh, you know the the tome to check in with that, so I love it. That's a, a great challenge. Thank you, Christopher. All right, thank you, Aaron. We just went deep. Hope we're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thanks for listening to the end of my interview with Christopher. If you enjoyed it, I think you'll also enjoy our past interview with Tom Galuzzo, the founder of I Am Robotics. We talk a bit about GPT-3, the artificial intelligence we referenced in this interview. We talk about his robotics company and leveling up as an entrepreneur. Check that out. Linked in the show notes below. And we'll catch you at next week's episode. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.